Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Idaho's hospitals creep closer to crisis standards of care. Meanwhile, lawmakers met this week to pick their leadership, giving us a glimpse of what policy proposals we might expect in the upcoming session. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press join me to discuss the legislature's organizational session and what implications that might have on policy in the upcoming session. But first, Idaho's COVID situation continues to worsen. In the last week, the state surpassed 100,000 known cases and 1,000 recorded deaths. And according to a White House Coronavirus Task Force report, Idaho is first in the nation in test positivity or the percentage of COVID tests that come back positive. That same report says 89% of Idaho's counties are in the red zone, meaning extremely high levels of community transmission. But even if you are still not concerned about the virus or if you've already had a mild case and have recovered, there's still one piece of this puzzle that has the potential to affect everyone and it's a statewide issue, and that's hospital capacity. In Eastern Idaho on Thursday, Dr. Kenneth Krell told Eastern Idaho Public Health's board that the state is nearing crisis standards of care or an official plan for rationing care in hospitals and prioritizing limited beds for patients who have a better chance of survival. There is a breaking point and that we are at it. We all grow numb to the numbers, how many cases, how many deaths, how many ICU admissions, but to those of us on the front line, the patients and the deaths are real, and the toll on healthcare workers is personal. It's been a bad couple of weeks at ERMAC. We've seen over 20 innovative COVID patients on many days, and, and so many on the wards that we've had to open space in radiology to house the less sick patients with no room on the usual wards. On Friday evening, the Central District Health Board is scheduled to vote on a public health order for its four-county region after Treasure Valley's hospitals struggled with ICU capacity over the last week. Among other restrictions, the draft order includes a mask mandate and a group size limitation of 10 and would cover Valley, Ada, Boise, and Elmore counties. Before making the motion for the order on Tuesday, Dr. Ted Epperly explained why he thought it was necessary. This is a crisis uh, and it's imminent and it's going to worsen. We've already seen the trend lines. They're going through the roof, both in terms of cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions. The problem is going to intensify remarkably in the next two to four weeks. And the reason for that is Thanksgiving. We all got together, 50% of the United States citizens traveled somewhere for Thanksgiving, according to surveys, and so people got exposed. There are more cases. We already had an incredibly high background rate. So what's gonna start to happen over the next two to four weeks is we're going to see these things go right through the roof. So uh, we 
right now already are the second highest test positivity state in the United States. We're at 18 percent uh, here. We have counties that are 27 percent uh, test positivity. If we do not do this, we will lose the hospitals. Hear me when I say that. We will lose the hospitals. We will go on a total divert in the Met in the Treasure Valley. We already know Utah is not taking, Montana is not taking, Nevada is not taking. That means by plane, we will have to transport people to Portland and to Seattle. And that's for routine hospitalizations, not just COVID cases. If you've got a stroke or a heart attack or appendicitis, you can't get in. We've got a major imminent crisis on our hands and I absolutely strongly urge us as a board to move this from being an advisory to an order. We'll have the results of that vote on our social media. And while officials discuss public policy to mitigate the virus spread, more than a thousand families in Idaho are grieving their loved ones this holiday season. Many of them didn't have the chance to say goodbye in person, having to settle instead for video chats. In raw interviews provided by St. Luke's, nurses describe the agony of those farewells. So my mom got it in March. They admitted her. She was in the step-down unit. And um, it was really hard. Sorry. It was so scary because being an ICU nurse and feeling helpless, like you can't even help your own family member. Um, it's just terrifying. Um, keeping my phone on high volume, waiting for the phone call that she was going to need to be intubated. Um, reading the notes here of patients having less than a 50% chance of survival. And knowing that, it was really difficult. Um, and then taking care of my own COVID patients. We have iPads that St. Luke's has provided. I've held that. I've had them say goodbyes to their family members on a ventilator, responsive and not responsive. People that realize that they're gonna pass away and people that don't realize that are not awake, that have maybe had a neurological event from it. And then her third day into the hospital admission, I did get a phone call around five in the morning from the nurse and she was in the room and I could hear the oxygen blowing and blowing and she wasn't doing well. So um, she urged me to talk to my mom on the phone, knowing that it might be the last time that anyone got to hear her voice, um, which was hard. And uh, it's always hard to have a death. There is no death that's easy. I don't want to minimize that. Um, 25 years of nursing, there's no death that is easy. I try not to cry. I put on a brave face for her because I didn't want her to know how scared I was. And, um, and then I didn't hear from her for eight days. And it's just, you keep thinking in your mind, did I say enough? Did she know that I love her? Like, it's hard to say what 
that feels like, but. It's a little bit better when the family members can be around and hold their hand or be there supporting the patient. And so there's a part of that, I suppose, that I grieve as well. I can't tell you how many convers or how many times I've been on this side of things, having my patient call their family member before we intubate for the last time, um, for the last video message, and uh, and then the silence that follows after is it's really hard. Lucky for me, my mom ended up getting better, and but it took her about probably four to five months to recover. And on behalf of everyone at Idaho Public Television, our sincerest condolences go to those who have lost loved ones. Joining me today for the pundits are Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Um, we both we all three spent the last part of the week covering the legislature's organization session. And there's a, an interesting juxtaposition here, right? While we're covering these hospitals who are nearing uh, crisis standards of care and getting close to their ICUs hitting capacity, we're seeing lawmakers who are getting together, um, many of them without masks and indoors. And not only indoors, I mean, the 104 of the 105 legislators were there in that building this week for the organizational session. And of course, the one who was missing was out with COVID-19. Um, we currently have a statewide um, public health order from the governor, his modified stage two, that limits all gatherings, including government meetings, to just 10 people. But it doesn't apply to the legislature in their space while they're conducting their business, and they are choosing not to follow anything of the sort. And they addressed this a little bit on the Senate floor, uh, didn't they, Betsy? Um, now Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder um, said, wear masks if you want to, go where your heart desires. Right, and that was actually when they were breaking, um, I think that was the first of these two very long days. Um, he was saying, as you go off and wait in line for committee assignments and have lunch, you're gonna be very close to each other. So wear your masks if you choose to do so. And Senator Winder, the new Senate president pro tem, was very careful to say that he wasn't telling anyone what to do. And we heard a very similar message from House Speaker Scott Bedke, um, who when asked if there ought to be requirements for social distancing and masking in the Capitol when these meetings are going on during this time, um, said that he is against any such mandates. And he just doesn't support them. And these legislators are all adults and they're elected officials and they can decide for themselves. And of course, I did speak with some legislators who said, well, we can't decide what those around us are doing. That's the problem. If everyone decides for themselves, people don't have the freedom to decide that they don't want to have unmasked people around them. Um, there are definitely some legislators who are very, very uncomfortable with this process, but they were all there except the one who was out with active symptoms of COVID-19. And let's not lose sight of the backdrop and what we've seen happen this week. We've seen two very disturbing milestones in Idaho's battle with the coronavirus. On Sunday, the number of cases eclipsed the 100,000 mark. And then later this week, the number of deaths exceeded 1,000. And that's a number that's doubled in just the past couple of months. We are in the heart of a very difficult time. Uh, the governor called it a precipice earlier this week. 
And I find myself thinking a lot about where we are in December, as opposed to where we were in March at the end of the legislative session, when we all had to make this decision about how to cover the end of the legislative session, how to attend or not attend uh, proceedings of the legislature, and where we are now in this pandemic nine months later, and how much uh, of a dark backdrop we have right now, as opposed to even where we were in March. And except for the uh, appearance of masks, which weren't widely used in March, nothing much has changed. It really is like uh, we're operating in two parallel societies right now, which honestly lines up with how the rest of the country is operating too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, you know, back to those leadership races and how that's going to affect policy with this upcoming uh, session. Um, you know, the real drama was in that House majority leadership race, even though at the end, lawmakers ended up with that same majority leadership team as they did last term. Uh, and, and Betsy, this is something that you covered pretty closely. That's right. Um, every position in the Senate majority, or I'm sorry, House majority leadership was contested this time around, but every challenge failed. And those who held those positions prior to this organizational session starting came out holding them for the next two years. And that did have an impact then on the subsequent committee chairmanships and assignments and so forth. Um, that's really interesting to watch as far as, as its dynamic and how it affects the working of the legislature. For example, Representative Judy Boyle, who ran for House Majority Leader against um, House Majority Leader Mike Moyle, lost and also lost her chairmanship of the House Agriculture Committee. Now she does remain on that committee. Representative Wendy Horman of Idaho Falls, who ran against Scott Begke for speaker, lost her vice chairmanship um, on JFAC, where she was the House vice chair, a very significant position. And she's a really key member of that committee. She is the lead crafter of the public school budget, which is the single largest piece of the entire state budget. She also, though, did not lose her seat on the committee. Um, in the end, she will remain on JFAC. She just won't be one of its leaders. You know, the other two challenges, uh, the, ch the challengers in House leadership for the majority team were representatives Vito Barbie Moon. They weren't in leadership they or they didn't have chairmanship positions to lose. But especially Representative Barbieri is a senior member of the legislature who has been a chairman before, got demoted after supporting another challenge two years ago to Speaker Bedke. Um, and it's it's notable that just like Representative Boyle, one of the more senior members of the House and doesn't have um, any leadership positions to show for it. At the same time, we saw a little bit of rehabilitation on the same front. Representative Brent Crane, who actually challenged the speaker two years ago and then was completely out of leadership for two years, is back. He is the new chairman of the House State Affairs Committee, which is also significant because his father, Ron Crane, um, chaired that same committee back in the 90s. It's a very um, significant committee. It's a big step um, up for him. And so it showed that after two years, he was back in the good graces, so to speak. Um, I did speak with former House Speaker Bruce Newcomb today about this dynamic, about when legislators run for leadership and challenge their existing leadership and then essentially are punished or disciplined. And he said he is all in favor of it. And that is how things have always worked. And the reason that he thinks they should is because otherwise legislative leadership really has no power. 
um, if it ca can't exert some measure of consequences. But he also said that there also has to be the rehabilitation, that you, you need to be able to get back in the good graces. And it's really not a matter, um, I think, in some of their eyes of being vindictive, but in a, uh, an action and consequences uh, kind of pattern. Well, we, we, now know that the, uh, we now know that the purgatory period in House, House Republican uh, caucus is about two years for, for Brent Crane. So we'll see, what, <laughs> it, it, we'll see what happens in 2022 in some of these cases as well. Well, speaking of Brent Crane, I remember speaking to him two years ago after his failed challenge to Speaker Bedke, and, and he didn't get any committee chairmanships. And he said, you know what? Speaker Bedke needs his team that he can rely on. This is fully what I expected. And I thought it was really symbolic that he is the one who swore in Speaker Bedke after that two-year period, for sure. Um, you know, I wanted to go to Senate Majority Leadership before we talk about the minority teams as well. Um, an open position for Senate President Pro Tem, Betsy, that uh, was filled by House Majority Leader Chuck Winder. All right, Senate Majority Leader. It's so sorry to get all these mixed up right now when we're juggling them all. Um, yeah, and so uh, as Majority Leader, Senator Winder was the number two person in leadership, and he ran for the number one position, and he won. But it was not unopposed. He was challenged by Senator Dan Johnson of Lewiston, and it sure looked like the same dynamic in that Senator Johnson was the Senate Vice Chair of JFAC, and after all the chips fell today, um, Senator Johnson not only no longer was the Vice Chair of JFAC, he wasn't even on JFAC. Uh, but he is the vice chair of resources. And when I spoke with Senator Winder about that this afternoon, he said, oh, well, we do everything by seniority in the Senate. And that was Senator Johnson's choice. He wanted to move on to these different committees. He didn't want to stay on JFAC. That was um, how Senator Winder described what happened. And so that vice chairmanship went to Senator uh, Jeff Agenbrod from Nampa, which means there are now two Canyon County legislators from Nampa in key positions on JFAC because the House chairman, of course, is Rick Youngblood, also man. You know, um, the House or the Senate Assistant Majority Leader um, Abby Lee is that, to my knowledge, is uh, the first woman in Senate Republican leadership. Well, it may well be. There have been women in the Senate uh, Democratic leadership, but I'm I'm hard pressed right now to. Think of one in the majority leadership, although, of course, Senator Lodge has been the um, state affairs chair, which is a leadership committee. Um, and uh, there were lots of women running for legislative leader positions in both houses and in both parties this year. I think, Melissa, you reported that it may have been a record. Um, and there still are, are a whole lot of women in the minority leadership, even if I can jump back to the House for a moment in the, the, the House had a contested race on the minority side. And Representative Laura Nicochia challenged the Assistant Minority Leader, John McCrosty, and she won that race. And so now the House minority leadership is all female. Absolutely. Yeah, I went back through coverage and couldn't find any examples coming close to the number of women, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, who were running for leadership in their own respective caucuses. Um, and, you know, another record-breaking uh, moment that's worth noting is Speaker Scott Bedke getting sworn in for his fifth term as House Speaker. Yeah, Speaker Bedke has, has been in that position since 2012. 
And the way he got it was really kind of history making because he was the um, the first, it was the first instant, instance in three decades where a top member of majority leadership in either house had been deposed by their own party um, when he defeated Lawrence Denny. And so as additional challenges have come up to his leadership, he has turned them back every time. And he did so again this time. For the Senate Minority Caucus, Senator Michelle Stennett is still the minority leader there. Then we have uh, Grant Burgoyne, who is assistant minority leader, and Janie Ward-Engelking, who is the Minority Caucus chairman. Um, but there were also some really interesting developments in the committee chairmanship assignments. We touched on a few of those on the House side. Kevin, can you talk to us about Senate education and why that's such a key committee assignment today? It's a key committee assignment, and it's going to be a very interesting committee to watch this next session. So Stephen Thane, who had been the vice chair of Senate Education, was promoted to the chairmanship. And, and that's how these things generally work. They don't always work this way. I mean, you know, a, a vice chairmanship does not guarantee you a, a chairmanship. But in this case, uh, he will he will take over. I'll be very interested to watch how much uh, Senator Thane tries to exert his will, exert his ideas, his approach to uh, education policy. You know, Senator Thane is, he's a bit of a mad scientist, and I don't mean that as a pejorative. He is a, he's one of these legislators, and there aren't that many of them really, who look at complex problems and try to, he tries to come up with sometimes fairly novel solutions or possible solutions. The Advanced Opportunities Program, which seemed like a, a really out of the box idea a few years ago. Now it's funded to the tune of about $20 million a year. Students across the state are using this money to take high school classes at, at state expense. I mean, that was a, an idea that uh, Senator Thane pushed for uh, you know, almost a decade ago. So I'll be very interested to see what sort of uh, influence he tries to exert on uh, you know, school choice, on addressing legislation that responds to uh, the Blaine Amendment with regard to using state funding uh, potentially to support religious education. We've had this landmark case at the Supreme Court. How does he use this position? But this is just going to be an interesting committee because five of the nine members of the committee also serve on JFAC. So you're going to have this real nexus between the education budget writing process and the education policy making process, which has always been kind of a source of tension. We've seen it over and over, tension between the budget committee and the germane committees, the, the policy making committees. Well, here you've got a majority of the members of the germane committee are on the budget committee. So this could be a very influential committee in terms of education funding and education policy. Kevin, can you talk to me a little bit about the House Education Committee? We've seen a lot of conflict there, uh, especially since Chairman Lance Clow took that position. He hasn't always had a lot of luck in getting his bills passed or bills that leadership or the governor wanted to see go through education. This is a bit of a rogue committee and has been for several years. I mean, there are a lot of very strong-willed and opinionated conservative hardliners on that committee. And you're right, Chairman Clow has had a, a hard time corralling his own party members, 
behind education policy. But that goes back even to uh, uh, Julie Van Orden, uh, his predecessor, who, who's, who was a House Education Chair uh, before she lost a primary a couple of cycles ago. It's a tough committee to run. So it's kind of interesting to see that uh, yeah, that that Lance Clow will continue as chair and Ryan Kirby will continue as vice chair. There were no changes made there. But there are some new members on that House committee, including some newly elected representatives. Representatives Galloway, Shepard, Yamamoto are among them. And and so who knows, perhaps the, the tone of that committee might change. Uh, we'll see. But I think that the core, you've got some, some really outspoken and really now, you know, hard dyed in the wool conservatives on the committee, Barbara Ehart, Judy Boyle, Ron Mendive, you know, the, the list goes up. I mean, this is a conservative committee, an ideologically conservative committee. And I should say that all those newly elected legislators are conservative Republicans as well. Yeah, I, I don't see a big, uh, big shift to the middle uh, necessarily on the Republican side in that committee. Betsy, we've gotten a preview of what lawmakers are interested in tackling this legislative session. This week, you also got a preview of what's on the governor's agenda uh, as he gave his keynote address at the Associated Taxpayers of Idaho. That's right. And typically at that event, um, he tips his hand a little bit about what he's going to propose to legislators, and he did to some extent, but the real focus of his message was what Kevin mentioned earlier, that he said, we are standing on a precipice with this COVID-19 pandemic. Our hospitals are filling up. And he ran down all of the economic successes that Idaho has seen even since the pandemic has started, but said they are all at risk right now if we can't turn around this pandemic. It could cause our businesses to go under, it could cause people to lose jobs, all those economic gains could evaporate. And basically, he was saying, we really can't have an economy without health. And he was calling on all Idahoans to wear masks, to respect social distancing, to do what needs to be done to get through this last time period until we have a vaccine. And all hopes are that that's just a few months. Um, but the governor's message was very somber. In some ways, it seemed as if he were speaking in a different state from that represented by the Capitol the last two days where the legislature was holding that organizational session that really was disregarding um, the pandemic and, and what's going on with it right now. You know, we have about a couple of minutes left, and I want to talk about, I, I want to turn the conversation on on how this affects other people who work at the State House too, because, you know, for the last nine months or so, it's, it's been the constitutional officers who have been working there. It's been legislative staff, but the lawmakers haven't been there. And it's a completely different dynamic in that building. Um, and, and that means, to be blunt, a lot of members of the media are going to be staying away this session and covering it from a distance. It was a new experience for me to cover the organizational session the last two days virtually. I watched the streams. I worked the phones. I didn't go down there. I did go down there earlier in the week and open up the press room and make sure that everything was set in case any reporters did want to go down there in person. I know at least one, Clark did, uh, Clark Corbin with Idaho Education News. But um, for the most part, I thought that I could do it remotely. And it was really, really challenging. And a very good example is um, I transcribed the Senate committee assignments as they were read across the desk. And I thought I did a really good job of it. And I just got a message saying, how come Representative Regina or Senator Regina Bayer 
is not on any committees. Well, there's a Senator Bayer and there's a Senator Bayer. I think I typed Bayer instead of Bayer and I have to go back and sort that out, but not being down there makes that much more difficult to do. And the last thing I wanna do is get stuff wrong. This is a big challenge. We're gonna have to leave it there. We're out of time. Kevin, Betsy, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.